Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring science and sanity. My guest is Professor Rolf Sattler, who is Emeritus Professor of Biology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He is also a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He's a specialist one of the world's foremost specialists, in fact, in plant morphology. He is the author of the award-winning book, Organogenesis of Flowers, as well as Biophilosophy, Analytic and Holistic Perspectives, as well as nearly a hundred scientific papers. He has taught a course on biology and Zen at the Naropa Institute in Colorado and has also given an invited lecture on the life sciences and spirituality in honor of the Dalai Lama's 60th birthday. His newest book is Science and Beyond Toward Greater Sanity Through Science, Philosophy, Art, and Spirituality. Professor Sattler is in Canada, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Rolf. It is a real pleasure to have you with me today on New Thinking Aloud. Thank you, Jeff. The pleasure is mine. I'm delighted that we can talk about such an interesting topic. Well, you have spent your career as a scientist, uh, so obviously you know the value of science, and yet at the same time, you seem to be cautioning people that science can be a, a very dangerous tool uh, when it's misused. And I'm under the impression that uh, the, the misuse of science is very considerable. Yes, and I am very concerned about that. And that's one reason why I wrote my book, because I think it can have grave and even catastrophical consequences. So, uh, yes, uh, I'm very, very much concerned about this misuse. And there are many, many ways in which it can be misused. And often not intentionally, only because people are not aware of the foundations of science. And they have all sorts of unrealistic beliefs about science. Well, I think one of those beliefs, which uh, is pretty well known in uh, my field of parapsychology, is the, the idea that science can prove something. My good friend Stanley Krippner often says, I uh, accept the word proof when it comes to liquor, but not science. Yes. Yes, and this belief is so widespread, so widespread among the general population, among government officials, and also among many scientists, to my great surprise. And it's so obvious that we cannot have proof in science because science is open-ended. Uh, there's no final word in science. If we make observations or experiments that uh, 
appear to prove uh, our hypothesis, we cannot know whether a repetition of these observations or experiments in the future will again, quote, prove it. So uh, we just don't know the future. And for that reason, it's impossible to prove uh, something in science. And yet we can read, oh, I read it all the time, scientifically proven uh, and so on and so on. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's astounding to me why, why this is so widespread. But it has also something to do with politics, I think. Is a comfortable feeling, I suppose, for people to think that there is a certainty. We can be absolutely sure of X, Y, or, or Z, but even in uh, philosophy and in, even in mathematics, proof is questionable. Mathematical proofs always depend on the postulates that you start with, which are uh, taken as axiomatic, uh, but they can also be questioned. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. And, and the consequences of this uh, wrong belief, I mean, are, are really very serious. One consequence is that if we believe that something has been proven, that closes the door to further investigation. Why should we look for anything else if we know we've proven it, right? And, uh, and furthermore, um, it leads to a kind of dogmatism. I mean, we know the truth, we know it's proven, and so it, be, it tends to become dogmatic. And it also may support a certain aggressiveness against those who don't believe in your proof. So uh, th these are very unfortunate consequences for individuals and for society. Well, there are many areas of human endeavor that uh, science doesn't begin to to touch. Uh, consciousness is probably the most significant one, one of all. Science seems to have no good explanation for consciousness. But there are some people now who, who think, uh, scientists, philosophers, who think that actually consciousness is primary. And the scientific and medical network uh, together with um, the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Academy of Post-Materialist Science uh, organized two symposia uh, about uh, this question and, and advancing arguments for the notion that consciousness is primary, not matter, but consciousness. And that uh, explains phenomena like uh, well, near-death experiences and, of course, many parapsychological phenomena with which you are very familiar. So uh, this, to me, is an interesting turn to consider the idea that consciousness is primary and not matter. And that, of course, changes also how we look at the brain, because then the brain uh, is no longer um, the seat uh, where consciousness originates, the brain then becomes uh, more or less a, a filtering system that filters out certain aspects. Uh, and that to me is fascinating. And, uh, and I, I think there is 
considerable evidence for looking at it this way. But um, this discussion has been going on for a long time, as you know, and there has been a lot of resistance. For example, at the beginning of the last century, Max Planck, one of the founders of quantum physics, already said that consciousness is fundamental. <laughs> and yet, where are we today? I think uh, today the materialist um, um, paradigm is still uh, the predominant paradigm. And people who don't uh, subscribe to it are often ridiculed or their ideas are suppressed or even censored. So uh, we haven't made a lot of progress in this respect, but uh, I, I'm not giving up and I'm not, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be too pessimistic. Sometimes it just takes a very long time. I am under the impression, Rolf, that your interest in plant morphology has drawn you into a, a mystical reality that you see that plants are pointing toward especially beautiful flowers uh, and their mandala-like shapes are, are pointing us towards uh, that which I think you refer to as the unnameable, things that we can never even speak about, but science can point towards them. Yes. Oh, yes. I think I, I've really learned uh, a lot from plant morphology, and I've been very inspired by a British plant morphologist, uh, Agnes Arbor, who wrote uh, several books, one on the natural philosophy of plant morphology, and her last book, actually a rather mystical book uh, called, entitled, um, the manifold and the one. <laughs> and uh, one thing she said was, if uh, plant morphology, like other specialized disciplines, seem to be a very narrow path, but if correctly pursued, it may lead to infinite issues. And this is exactly what happened in my life. I started with plant morphology, uh, you know, in, in, in university, I was also indoctrinated and I believed in, in the materialist paradigm and plants are just a manifestation of matter. And I pursued it more and more. And the more I pursued it, the more it led me beyond. Uh, and, uh, and this to me has been really fascinating. Well, I know, for example, one of the, the great early scientists of, of plants and plant morphology was Goethe, who most people don't even think of Goethe as, as a scientist. People think, oh, he was a dramatist and a poet. Uh, but actually, he did a lot of scientific work and he seemed to feel that the archetypal images of poetry are also expressed in, in the world of plants. Yes, he is considered one of the founders of plant morphology. Uh, he wrote this little booklet called The Metamorphosis of Plants. Uh, when he made a trip to Italy, he got inspired there and he came back and uh, and then he wrote this book. And this is co considered a cornerstone in plant morphology. But uh, he also made remarks uh, that are not so well known that go far beyond what he wrote in, in, in his booklet on uh, metamorphosis of plants. And uh, 
remarks that actually came close to those of Agnes Arbor, who had a very different outlook, because many plant morphologists, even today, still have a very categorical outlook. They say a plant consists of three major organs, roots, stems, and leaves, and everything you observe must be either one or the other. So you see there is an Aristotelian logic implied and either Aristotelian, either or logic, either this or that. And Agnes Arbor could see beyond this logic and could uh, embrace more of both and logic. I think one could even say that she was inspired by yin-yang thinking. I'm not sure about that, but it's very much in line with yin-yang thinking, her, her, her way of thinking. And mine, of course, also uh, I also pursued this kind of thinking then. That's actually one thing that attracted me to your, to your website. When I saw your beautiful <laughs> yin-yang symbol, I was so impressed and I want to congratulate you on it. I mean, how you did that with the colors. This is just astounding. And to me, the yin-yang symbol and the, the thinking uh, on which it's based is so fundamental. Uh, I, 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 I wish it would be much more appreciated. I taught for a long time a course on the uh, history of biology. And I started this course with a comparison of Western thinking and Chinese thinking, Aristotelian logic versus yin-yang thinking. And I think that if in our culture we would have had more appreciation of yin-yang in yang thinking, the course of history might actually have been different because it's so fundamental and it changes things so fundamentally because in our culture even today and also in science still to a great extent, people ask, keep asking, is it this or that? Is it good or evil? Is it is it is it right or wrong? And so on. This seems to be so deeply ingrained. And if we could appreciate yin yang, we would see that it could be both, right? So it makes an enormous difference. The idea that seems fundamental to me about the yin yang symbol is that everything contains within itself the seed of its own opposite. Exactly. Yes. And also, uh, yin flows gradually into yang and vice versa. So it's contrary to the, the law of the excluded middle in Aristotelian logic, where it has to be either this or that. One can see a continuum. And this has been very, the idea of a continuum has been very important for me in plant morphology because. First of all, it's quite obvious that there is a continuum between the root and the stem, yet many morphologists try to find the limit between the two, but it's a continuum. Also, there's a continuum between the stem and the leaves. Actually, a colleague of mine wrote, uh, wrote an article about the stem um, node leaf continuum. So this idea of a continuum has been very important. And also there is a continuum between categories, like the categories root stem and leaf. So the idea of a continuum is very important. And uh, 
that is very much in line with what's called now fuzzy logic. Uh, fuzzy logic was uh, invented uh, in the 60s and then uh, Bart Kosko wrote a book, published a book in the 90s uh, on fuzzy logic or fuzzy thinking that I found extremely important. Uh, but again, uh, this is not very much appreciated in our culture. In our culture, as soon as when you refer to fuzziness, this is considered something negative. And people think, oh, well, he cannot make up his mind. Is it this or that? And so on. It's imprecise and so on. But actually, fuzzy logic, logic is much more precise than either or logic because it it shows precisely to what degree uh, anything is a member of a certain set so uh, that is not very much appreciated uh, and i find it really amazing i have given talks about fuzzy logic and so on and i had many negative reactions often oh this man doesn't does cannot make up his mind and he's confused and so on and so on so there's a lot of misunderstanding about that but again i think it's very clear in the yin-yang symbol and in, 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 in the thinking, the, the gradual uh, change from one to the other. It's not just at one point totally yang or totally yin. It goes gradually one in the other, as you know very well. <laughs> well, you, I understand, are a member of the Linnaean Society. Uh, Linnaeus, as I understand with my limited knowledge was uh, the developer of the whole field of classification and categories and uh, the, the large categories I think the, the very big ones are are known as kingdoms the plant kingdom the animal kingdom the mineral kingdom would you say that there are uh, fuzzy boundaries between these kingdoms Fungi are a good example. They never fitted very well into the animal kingdom and not very well into the plant kingdom. I mean, like like plants, they don't move around, uh, but like they chemically, they have uh, something in common with, with animals. So they were shifted around back and forth. Now, one way to get out of this dilemma is make it a separate kingdom. So now they are separate. But I think uh, this is not a, 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 a final solution of the of the continuum problem to just create then a new class. You know, uh, I think the continuum remains. So yes, um, I think there's a lot of continuity. And actually, it's not surprising. Evolution was a more or less gradual process, and so you would expect a continuity and uh, and not totally abrupt changes uh, that would um, justify uh, classifications. Well, since you bring up the uh, theory of evolution, uh, usually uh, referred to as Darwin's theory or evolution by natural selection, uh, many people regard that as proven. I think it's pretty standard in the biological sciences to assume that uh, the theory of evolution is the framework within which we can understand all of biology. Uh, how do you view that? Well, there is a confusion about uh, 
theory of evolution and Darwinism. There are different theories of evolution and Darwinian, the Darwinian theory is only one, but that's the predominant one. And that's the one you still find in textbooks. And uh, it's, I think, I, I think one cannot deny that there is some some truth, some aspect uh, that of truth in Darwinian thinking, uh, but it's too limited, I think. And um, there is now uh, a theory considered, or a, a number of theories considered, uh, extended evolutionary theory uh, that goes beyond Darwinism. Uh, in these. Um, these extended theories, there's a recognition, for example, of self-organization, or there's much more a recognition of cooperation, because as you know, in Darwinism, uh, struggle and competition is considered fundamental, and so cooperation has been very much neglected. And if one looks in the index of a biology book, uh, uh, you often don't find uh, cooperation at all. You may find many entrance entrance to competition, but not cooperation. But there's much co cooperation in nature. Even Darwin has pointed that out, but this has been overlooked by neo-Darwinians who often have been more um, Darwinian than Darwin himself. So uh, it's, it's interesting, I think, that... Um, that we, we gradually, there's gradually some recognition of um, other forces in uh, evolution besides, uh, besides chance and uh, selection uh, through uh, competition. But um, uh, the, the alternative theories are still more or less at the periphery. As far as I can see, uh, Darwinian thinking is still predominant. And... Um, that fits in, of course, very well with capitalism, where uh, competition is also very important. And it fits in very well with the military complex, again, where competition is very important. So for these reasons, I think it's not easy to change that. And there is a lot of resistance to these more extended evolutionary theories. Earlier, you talked about the uh, notion for first promulgated, well, not first, but promulgated by Max Planck, that consciousness is fundamental rather than matter. That seems as if it's turning science upside down on its head completely. But if we assume, uh, well, before I ask if we assume, let me ask you, do you subscribe to that view? As a student, of course, I did not because I was indoctrinated <laughs> and it took me some time to see beyond that. But having been a member of the scientific and, net, and, uh, medic, scientific and medical network, I, I could see beyond that. And I think there is much merit to this view. But uh, I, I would prefer to actually... Uh, you've referred already to the unnameable. I would uh, prefer to say the ultimate reality is unnameable, and then uh, out of this unnameable comes consciousness and also matter. So uh, I would be sort of maybe somewhere in the middle, but I would tend to see consciousness as, as more fundamental as, as matter. Mm -hmm. But then the unnameable to me is still more fundamental. And here, 
I was very much uh, impressed by Kosipski, to whom I also dedicated my book. Uh, as you know, uh, Kosipski wrote a very important book uh, entitled Science and Sanity. In uh, was published 1933. And um, this book has had an enormous influence on me because he pointed out the importance of abstraction, that we are often not aware how we abstract from reality. Uh, we, we, we talk and use, we use concepts and language and we think that's it. But language is an abstraction. So language is not the thing. You know, his famous slogan was, uh, uh, the map is not the territory. And language is, of course, a certain map. And then if language is considered a map, then uh, and not the territory, territory, then what Kosipski said is, whatever you may say, it's not it. Or whenever you say what something is, it's not it. Why not? Well, because it's formulated in language and language does not touch reality. Actually, I don't know whether people can see behind me. I have a, a diagram of Kosipski's structural uh, differential in which he showed, you know, that what we do uh, when we use language, we select certain features from reality and they are reflected in language. But it's a selection. It's not reality itself. So it's a selection or an abstraction. Abstraction literally means to select or to withdraw from something. And this is often not appreciated, but that is so fundamental and so I I am very much, I have learned very much from Korsipsky and I wish the world would learn more for, from Korsipsky because uh, I think his uh, impact, uh, his, his uh, um, discovery and his work has been so important. Well, it seems as if what you're saying is that when we confuse words for reality or concepts or theories for reality, that we are entering into uh, a realm of insanity or something less than being completely sane. We're, we're making a very serious uh, confusion. Yes, yes. And you know, the subtitle of my book is taught greater sanity. <laughs> so I'm very much interested in sanity. Uh, but I don't understand sanity in just in the medical or psychiatric sense. To me, sanity means understanding and being in tune with reality. And uh, if we don't recognize uh, abstraction, then of course we are not in tune. We don't understand and we are not in tune uh, with reality. And so this creates a certain insanity. And so Korsipsky has pointed out, you know, when we, when we, are, not, when we are not aware that uh, whatever we say is not it, then it's becoming insane. And so that means actually that, that a lot of what's going on in this world is insane, which is surprising to many people. I would say involves a degree of insanity or some delusion. 
One, one would think that we do live in an insane world when you consider that in the name of science and rationality, we are polluting the planet, we are making war with members of our own species, we are destroying the environment that we need to survive. Uh, all of these things suggest that we are living in less than a sane world. Yes, I agree. And also, I think one, one insanity is to believe that science will actually lead us to the truth. Uh, I think science can lead us at best to some aspects of the truth, but not the truth. And one reason why it cannot lead us to the truth is because in science, we use language or mathematics, a form of language. And since language is an abstraction from reality, it obviously cannot be the truth or the whole truth. It can be at best a part of it. But you know, in our culture and society, the view that science can lead us to the truth is very common. And therefore, whatever is beyond science is considered um, imagination, fantasy, or a personal uh, irrelevant pursuit, but not the truth. And I am very concerned about these uh, aspects that are beyond science, like uh, like art, you know, like music, uh, and uh, or like um, spirituality where we ex experience uh, reality not in terms of language and concepts and lo logic, but in a more direct way. Uh, that may be also um, illusory sometimes, but at least uh, it's an alternative that should not be discounted. But it is discounted if we believe that science leads us to the truth. So why look for something else, right? We have it, and uh, and that can be very can have catastrophical consequences, I think, as you pointed out. Well, you seem to be going even further because not only are you saying that science cannot lead us to the truth, but any endeavor that is expressed in language will always fall short of the truth. And that's, of course, a, a problem in, uh, in our culture, in our society, in politics, in personal relationships. When you talk to your beloved, I mean, uh, you may end up in great misunderstandings because of language. And sometimes it may be better to just uh, communicate in silence. And uh, I have emphasized very much silence in my book for that reason, uh, because uh, Ultimately, I think it cannot be said. And so one can be, maybe there is a possibility to be in truth in silence, uh, but not, not through words. Words are, are, are limited. You, in fact, have meditation exercises throughout your new book, and you seem to be suggesting that these exercises can take a person to a, a place of understanding beyond words. Yes, yes. And that is very important for me. So that's why I included these exercises. But uh, 
the the editor of my book thought this should be cut out. <laughs> that is really irrelevant, but I persisted. <laughs> and the other thing that also was not very looked upon, not favorably looked upon, is the jokes I included in the book <laughs> because jokes to me are also very important. Because if, if one uses language, one can and concepts and long lang, uh, logic, one can become too serious. Uh, whereas a joke, I think, sometimes can jolt you out of the seriousness. And by laughing, one can actually contact an aspect of reality that may be deeper than one that can be reached through words. And actually, one thing, you know, I have been retired now for a long time. One thing I pursued uh, during my retirement was uh, laughter yoga. Uh, laughter In laughter yoga, one meets with a group and one does some simple exercises that make us laugh. And uh, if, one, if one, one does that for half an hour or an hour, it can be amazing how you feel afterwards. You feel somewhat free or liberated in a way uh, which you cannot reach through language. So uh, laughter has been very important to me. I started laughing already with my students. Uh, during exam time, sometimes um, the atmosphere was very tense. And at the end of a lecture, I would just burst out into laughter and the students would join me and we laughed together for a few minutes and so on. And this has been so wonderful for the students. And for me, it also has created a bond. And I think... Uh, Laughter can do really uh, miracles almost, I would say. And so laughter and silence, I would consider very important. <laughs> As if laughter can take one to a, a mystical place, to an altered state of consciousness. Yes. Oh, yes, I think so. Yes, I agree. <laughs> you, you seem to be suggesting then that really in order to practice science, one has to include in one's personal discipline some of these nonverbal approaches to reality. Yeah, I'm not sure whether one has to. I think one can't do science without that. But if one can include that, I think that would probably would lead to a deeper understanding and deeper level and could open vistas that would not be possible without that. So, um, yes, I think this can be very helpful. And I think great scientists have made comments in this regard. You can find quotations supporting that uh, by Albert Einstein, for example. I have uh, this quotation at the top of my book where, where he says, uh, the the most beautiful thing um, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious it is the source of all true art and science so great scientists often have been very tuned in to this um, what goes beyond words and uh, Einstein is one example Schrödinger and others are other examples um, uh, uh, as a biologist, um, Barbara McClintock, uh, she uh, was very inspired by Tibetan Buddhism. And um, one of her quotes, famous quotes, is basically everything is one. And uh, if one operates from this realization, I think that can be very helpful in science. The idea that all is one is... Uh 
basic to virtually every mystical tradition on the planet. Yes. Yeah. I like to think when I do interviews that the best interviews come around to that uh, situation as well. And to me, what it means is that if, if you love yourself, which is, I think most people would consider a goal, self-love uh, is a healthy thing. Now, I don't mean egotistical self-love, but in, in the deeper sense of the self, it also suggests to me loving the whole universe. Yes. Oh, yes. I think this this oneness is very important. And uh, in science, of course, there is now much evidence for interconnectedness and oneness. It took us a long time to learn that, but it has become very obvious in uh, ecology. But uh, I think... Uh, one one must also reach this this uh, feeling of oneness uh, through one's own experience, uh, uh, and uh, and that to me was very important to, to uh, reach it through um, let's say meditation or other uh, practices or just uh, spontaneous insights. And uh, to me, this uh, convergence of uh, what's found in science, the oneness found in science, and the oneness that one can experience personally is a very important discovery because I think we have to recognize the third person and first person um, perspectives and bringing these together uh, through oneness to me has been very important. It seems as if uh, the third person perspective is is one of division. It starts, I suppose, with the division between me and the rest of the universe. And uh, you seem to be suggesting that that division, which is sort of natural to language itself and to uh, individual consciousness, is something of an illusion. Yes, I think it is. Uh, well, there may be there may be some partial validity to it because uh, although I am one. With the universe, I am still somewhat, as a person, somewhat differentiated. And so um, I, I think one, one has to see both. For me, there's great wisdom in the Heart Sutra that says form is emptiness and emptiness is form. So one has to recognize the forms that are separate or can be distinguished, let's say, and the emptiness that is boundless and that is unified and that is one. And therefore, to me, a sort of non-dualistic view is very attractive where one recognizes the the manifold and the one. Therefore, I appreciate so much the title of Agnes Arbel's last book called The Manifold and the One, recognizing both, but uh, not just one or the other. Because I think there is a tendency in some spiritual circles to just dwell in the one and to uh, disregard or neglect the many. And uh, of course, in science, it's the opposite to just uh, dwell in the many and often disregard the one. So I think it's important to bring the two together. And this has been important to me in my life. Uh, and I think this has been also important to quite a number of authors uh, who have written on the relation between spirit, science and spirituality. It seems as if your fundamental message, Rolf, is one of balance. Yes, 
Oh, exactly. Yes, balance, and and that's uh, that's again, of course, very important in in Taoism, in Yin Yang. Uh, yin and Yang have to be balanced, and if they are not balanced, well, it leads to sickness. And I think, uh, in a way, we can see. Uh, that our society, our culture is sick because there's so much emphasis on yang and not enough on yin. And therefore, the balance is so important. And to me, it's important intellectually, but it's also important experientially. And that's why I practice Qigong and Tai Chi, where the balance is really very important, though, where it's expressed and where it's instilled in my own being. Yes, balance. Balance is very important. And you know that according to Chinese thinking, uh, health is actually defined as balance. Uh, that's a very important uh, definition of health, I think. In contrast, in, in Western medicine, there is very little uh, talk about health. There is more talk about sickness and, uh, of course, not very much talk about balance. And I think that's a big problem. One of the issues that I found really fascinating in your book was your description of the human condition. And when we look at the human condition, you, you suggest one of the first things we have to take into account is, is that we are primates. And, and we have primate cousins that we can uh, study and learn about ourselves by observing them. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. That is very important for me. And uh, the, I, I, I've read a book by Franz de Waal, who is a primatologist, who pointed out how much we actually in our behavior, well, genetically, of course, we are very similar to, to chimpanzees uh, and, and bonobos, but how much we have also in common in terms of our behavior. We have, for example, in common this, this drive for power, which is very important in chimpanzees, you know, to be the alpha male uh, that we have in common. But we also have in common um, um, chimpanzees can be very altruistic and uh, they can show empathy. And so we have already both of that, what we find in human society, the egotistical trait and the altruistic trait we find in chimpanzees and, and, and other primates and other animals. And uh, so I think it's very important to be aware of it. But again, this can get out of balance. And it may, may have been, I don't know, I'm not a specialist on chimpanzees. It might have been a bit out of balance already in chimpanzees. Bonobos, in contrast to chimpanzees, are much less um, egotistical, much less power-driven. Uh, as you may know, they solve most of their problems through sex, and uh, so they cooperate a lot. When chimpanzees intrude a new cat, uh, territory, they, they fight and they may kill uh, to get a better fruit tree or whatever. When bonobos in, intrude into a new territory, they they don't fight. They uh, they have sex with the the other bonobos in the territory. So they they are peaceful, uh, very peaceful. And it seems that we may have maybe a bit too much in common with uh, chimpanzees and not enough with bonobos. But I think we have the potential of both. So this can be corrected and this can be changed, I think.
then of course uh, talking about the human condition what is new in 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 humans is uh, language and logic and uh, and, and yes and that is um, that uh, if contributes of course as you have already pointed out to the division because language divides and we sh if we are not aware of it then of course we get more division which is a basis than for competition which reinforces the competition and so the human condition is is i as i see it very much a result of our animal ancestry and then the introduction of language and and a lack of realization of the limitation of language i i i'm not against language i think it's wonderful to communicate through language but i think the problem is not being aware of the limitations of language the problem is not 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 language we need it in many ways but uh, but the awareness we need also and that's often lacking well, it seems the same is true of science, that the uh, problems of science, uh, the social problems generated by science are largely caused by a lack of appreciation for the limits of science. Yes. Oh, yes. I think that's one of the major problems of of uh, in in our culture limitate not being aware of the limits of uh, of uh, science and uh, and this is not sufficiently taught in school and, and university, I find. In contrast, uh, we often are taught the great successes of science. And of course, science has had great successes, but the limitations are so important. And I wish this would be more pointed out in uh, school and universities. And this would also have a very beneficial effect then on our culture and society and our individual lives. And one reasons for writing my book was exactly this, to point out the limitations of science. Um, and and the consequences of not being aware of them. Well, you've done a masterful job. I highly recommend your book to uh, our viewers. It seems as if uh, what you've been able to do is encapsulate very clearly your many, many decades of thoughtful inquiry into this area, the, the limitations of science, the limitations of, of language, the, the limitations of our whole culture because it's out of balance. So, Professor Rolf Sattler, thank you so much for being with me today. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for this interview. It's a pure delight talking with you because uh, uh, the questions you ask and the comments you make are so helpful and they, they really lead to a most interesting discussion that I enjoyed immensely. So, thank you very much, Jeff. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.